Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 John chapter 2. I mentioned in the last episode that it appears that 1 John is loosely organized around two great theological themes. God is light and God is our Father. John establishes a foundational principle, and then he lays out several logical and obvious implications. In the last half of chapter 1, he said that God is light, and therefore real believers, those who are walking in the light, hate and renounce their sin. The chapter division here is unfortunate because it would appear that the first two verses of chapter 2 are really the completion of that thought with the new thought beginning at verse 3, identified by one of John's favorite phrases, by this we know. So verses 1 to 2 further develop the idea that because God is light, real Christians are renouncing sin, after which he introduces a second implication. Because God is light, real Christians will obey God. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I mentioned in the last episode that John was pushing back in two directions on this matter of the believer and sin. It is so easy to get this wrong. As is often the case, the path of orthodoxy is a narrow path with very deep ditches on either side. John Stott is absolutely marvelous here. He says, It is possible to be either too lenient or too severe towards sin. Too great a lenience almost encourages sin in the Christian by stressing God's provision for the sinner. An exaggerated severity, on the other hand, either denies the possibility of a Christian sinning or refuses him forgiveness and restoration if he falls. Both extreme positions are contradicted by John. I can tell you from personal experience, I feel like I have walked through both of those extreme ditches during seasons of my Christian life. There were years, decades even, when I was walking in the ditch of moral leniency. I loved Jesus, but I didn't really hate my sin. I knew that the blood of Jesus could wipe away sin, so what was the big deal? But then there were also seasons in my life when I became so overwhelmed with the sense of my sins that I despaired of my own salvation. Surely I've sinned too many times or in too egregious a fashion to ever be truly forgiven and loved by God. I've spent a fair bit of my life in both of those ditches. So I'm very thankful for the clarity here in John. John is saying, I don't want you to sin. I am writing to you so that you don't sin. Sin is bad. It offends God. It is contrary to his character. It is unbefitting for a child of life. It brings nothing but unhappiness to everyone involved. So knock it off. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins. 
and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That is the narrow way. That is Christianity in a nutshell. Thanks be to God. Now, in the interest of clarity, we should pause here for a second and make sure that we've understood a couple of potentially confusing words and phrases in this paragraph. First of all, in verse 2, John says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? The Greek word used here is unique to John. In fact, it is unique to the first epistle of John, being used only here and in chapter 4, verse 10. It is used six times in the LXX, the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in every one of those instances, it refers to the removal of guilt because of sin, generally by means of sacrifice. So the idea here seems to be that Jesus helps us as sinners in two ways. First of all, he serves as our advocate before the Father. John says that in verse 1. Jesus argues for us and represents us before Almighty God. That's good news. But then secondly, he is also our sacrifice, removing the guilt that was ours because of sin. These are overlapping images that together imply that when we stand before the Father, Jesus pleads his own blood on our behalf. Praise the Lord. Second thing we need help understanding here is that phrase at the end of verse 2, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That almost sounds like John is espousing some kind of universalism, which we know can't be true because later on in this letter, John says in 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So again, John sees things in a very binary way. There are two groups. Those who have the Son have life. Those who don't have the Son do not have life. So John is definitely not a universalist. So what does he mean when he says that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? The most likely answer is that he means that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins, not just of the Jews, but also for the sins of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. In that sense, this is no different than what John the Baptist said about Jesus when he first announced him in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here is a sacrifice that will remove the guilt, not just of Jews, but also of Medes, Parthians, Romans, Greeks, Cappadocians. And today we would add Canadians, Americans, Argentinians, Ethiopians, and Mexicans. Thanks be to God. In verse 3, we enter a new section. John is continuing to unpack a variety of implications associated with his first foundational assertion. God is light. God is light, and therefore, real believers are renouncing sin. We've talked about that. And as we discover here, they are also keeping his commandments. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because... The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother 
is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. God is light. His ways are right, John says, and morally pure, and and they are life-giving, and they lead to justice, wellness, and flourishing for all. Therefore, if you are truly walking with God, then you will trust what he says, and you will affirm his judgments and declarations. That is the mark of a true believer. Look at verse 6 there. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Close quote. Now, remember, these heretics thought that they were beyond good and evil. They said that they knew God. In fact, they said they knew God better than anyone else. But they simultaneously claimed that they weren't terribly concerned about their moral behavior. Their philosophy was, love God and do what you like. But that's nonsense, John says. If you truly know God, then you will do what he likes. In fact, you will trust what he likes far more than you trust what you like. Because he is the light, and his ways are pure and righteous altogether. According to John, to be in right relationship with God is to be characterized by a genuine concern for his commandments. To be in right relationship with God is to imitate the character of God on display in the life and behavior of Jesus Christ. Again, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 2.6 Okay, well, Jesus demonstrated a concern for the commandments of God. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 17 to 19. So Jesus had a concern for the commandments of God. I don't know how you could argue with that. And the apostles had a concern for the commandments of God. I don't think you can argue that either. Even Paul, the apostle of grace, had an undeniable concern for the commandments of God. He said, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, Romans 7:12. People get confused with Paul because he was so clear and so adamant in affirming that the law doesn't save us. And of course, that's true. But people falsely extrapolate from that to suggest that the law doesn't matter. But Paul never said that. Just because it doesn't save us doesn't mean that it isn't helpful. The church doesn't save us either, but the church is very helpful. And so is the law. The law shows us God's character in action. It helps us understand what is holy, righteous, and good. It can't help us be holy, righteous, and good, but it does show us what that looks like. It says, here is the path, walk ye in it. Now, of course, only Jesus walked that path perfectly, and only Jesus can heal and change our hearts and help us walk the path perfectly progressively as he changes us by his spirit by one degree of glory to the next. So Jesus is better than the law, but he's not opposed to the law. That's a fine distinction, but it really matters. John's saying here, a real Christian, a real believer is going to renounce sin 
and is going to honor the commandments of God, which in typical Johannine fashion can be summarized under the rubric of love. The law illuminates the path of love. So if you hate your brother, John says, you're obviously not on the path of light and love. That's the idea here. Verses 12 to 14 function as a sort of hinge, summarizing the teaching thus far and preparing the reader for John's next implication as stated in verses 15 to 17. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here John seems to be saying that because God is light, real believers will reject worldliness. Once you come into the light, you can never look at things in the dark in quite the same way. You can't laugh at what you used to laugh at. You can't live for what you used to live for. You see the world differently now. You see the world through the lens of light. C.S. Lewis said famously, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Close quote. That's what Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. All true children of the kingdom mourn. They look at the world through the light of Christ, and they are sad. They are heartbroken over the values, over the destructive behaviors, over the godless pursuits, over the awful trajectory that it is on. They see things the way they are now. And therefore, they are urgent in prayer and focused on their mission. Put simply, my friends, if you are loving this world and living your best life now, then you are probably not a real believer. Worldliness is a sign of unconversion. In verses 18 to 29, John unpacks a final implication. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. 
If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Here John is saying that real believers persevere. Real believers stay on the old path and they walk on the old path all the way home to glory. They went out from us, but they were not of us, he says. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So real believers persevere. They don't leave the path. They don't wander away from the gospel in which they first believed. They have the Holy Spirit in them. He won't let them leave the path. Like that lane keep assist function in your car. If you start drifting, the Holy Spirit nudges and pushes and prods you back. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.